The podcast will begin right after a message from our sponsor. Many mothers find it hard to start working again. We started our online catering business for them. Through Grow with Google, we learn how to make our business stand out for free. Now in France, we've empowered more than 50 women to make a living from their cooking skills. We are Lubna and Donia of Meet My Mama. Two of the 725,000 Europeans so far who found a job or grown their business with Google's help. By 2020, we will support 1 million more. Grow with Google. To find out more, search new skills, new opportunities. Hey everyone, welcome back to EU Confidential. I'm your host, Ryan Heath, the political editor of Politico Europe. This week saw the continent's annual day, Schumann Day, celebrated on May 9, and many of the continent's high office holders are in Florence for a European University Institute annual State of the Union conference. That includes Federica Mogherini, who is caught up in Donald Trump's attempt to wreck the Iran nuclear deal and Sergio Mattarella, the president of Italy, who has been desperately looking for his political parties to form a stable government. I've joined them here, camping out at an agriturismo, a farm bed and breakfast, perched on one of those famously beautiful Tuscan hills. Because the main action takes place Friday, that's too late for this week's podcast episode, but we'll have more on the conference next week. This week's episode features Vincent Stuhr, author of a new book about life inside the EU's HQ. It's called Curb Your Idealism. I've known Vincent since we were EU speechwriters together, and he's now working for Valdis Dombrovskis, the EU's vice president for the Euro. I also speak to Luca Yaye. He's the newest EU president of the Union's Economic and Social Committee. He's been involved in another of this week's big initiatives, the crowdsourced creation of a survey that is now open to all 500 million European citizens about what they want their union to look like. And perhaps most importantly of all, it's Eurovision finals this weekend and the Smurfs are turning 60. First, we hear from Vincent Stewart. Bear with the background noise. We did this interview streetside. We are curbside to discuss Curb Your Idealism. Welcome, Vincent. Hi, Ryan. We are standing outside your book launch. It's a big night for you. And you've put this book together by talking to EU insiders, people who actually wield power inside the EU to ask them about the limits of their power, what constrains them, where they might have failed, where they think they've best succeeded. And it's really talking around this idea that people expect so much of Europe, but they don't have a lot of patience for the realities of governing. And that leads to some people, you say, thinking that the EU is, quote, overbearing and underwhelming. What made you come to that conclusion? And what can the EU do to put a more realistic view into people's minds? My starting point was basically the way we talk about Europe, both officials and politicians, often plays into those cliches. And the, the, the way we talk about Europe could be being more realistic. I'll give you a good example. When I was almost finished writing the book, uh, Martin Schulz in Germany, after the election, came out and says, we need to have a United States of Europe by 2025. Now, I don't think you're doing anyone any favors by promising something or holding out something that is not actually very realistic. Especially when you've just lost an election. Especially when it's sort of a cover to get your idealism back and then you just, just throw it towards Europe and point towards the horizon there. But the way he said it was interesting. Uh, and he said that, in a sense, there was a party conference. He told his people, we're not some mushy technocrats. I don't know what the German word for mushy is, but I read it in English. <laughs> we're not mushy technocrats, we're idealists, and therefore we need to move to a United States of Europe. I don't think it's feasible. We usually expect it. 
And there is a lot of heartache or heartburn inside the EU institutions around why can't we convince people to love us? You know, you can convince people at a technical level that the EU is credible. You convince elites that spend a lot of their time thinking about these issues that the EU makes sense. And you actually have this kind of counterintuitive thought that you don't need to love the EU to be a part of it. You can accept it without loving it. The people I spoke with, it's about 25 officials and politicians who were in and around the European Commission. That's where I spent the last decade or so of my uh, working life. And I asked them basically about how they felt, how they've evolved and whether or not they live up to the cliches of these scheming federalists that people still think uh, inhabit the Berlimont. And they have become in general older, sadder and wiser. They have got more power because Europe has a lot more to say about your budgets and your economic policies and now into migration and so on. But at the same time, the, the idealism is much less in the sense that you know we are faced with things that we cannot tackle. We couldn't save Greece from itself. We are now facing terrorism, migration, all these things in foreign affairs and geopolitical issues where Europe has some influence, but it hasn't doesn't have the last word on all these things. Now, one thing that is in common with those things you just listed is that they're external factors in a way. Not all of them, but most of those were external things. And there's also an internal problem now where at one point in the book you talk about East and West are no longer speaking the same language. So the EU can't really blame the rest of the world or some other force for the fact that some of its own members are almost not willing to go along with the EU value system anymore. What did the the people you spoke to, what did they have to say about that? I think that's probably the one issue where they were most emotional about. Because on the one hand, the European you know, secret source of, of investment and democracy and sort of the low-level politics that we use to, to uh, write our story at one end. And on the, on the other hand, the bigger story of, of us facing the rest of the world and the values attached to it. If ever that formula was successful, it's in Central and Eastern Europe. And exactly there we see that it seems to not be working anymore. Now we have to qualify that. Everyone agrees that there is a lot of pro-European sentiment in Central and Eastern Europe, probably more so than in other countries. And also the fears that people have in Central and Eastern Europe are not focused only there. We have the same thing in the Netherlands and the same thing in France. I mean, more people voted for anti-European parties in I France. Wonder, I wonder, I've got a thought Poland. bubble now, sorry to interrupt you, but I wonder whether people feel more comfortable voting for the Viktor Orbans or the Kaczynskis of this world because they know the EU's there as a backstop. They want the EU, and if things got really serious, they'd get on the streets and fight to defend their membership of the EU. But they also like some of the domestic things that Orban and Law and Justice promise, and they're able to kind of have the best of both worlds because there is EU membership. I think there is a risk of that, yeah, and people feel safe because, you know, we're in Europe and we can't, can't fall back to the communist areas, basically. So we can afford to do things. I mean, you see that in a different way. The same was true for Scotland and, and Catalonia, for instance, where that was my previous book. But their separatism really took off after they became members of the European Union. And it's sort of, they see it as a safeguard for the less attractive sides of nationalism, which is something you need to be very careful. On the other hand, I think there is a very real issue politically in Central and Eastern Europe, even more so than in Western Europe, that it shows how the challenges we face now are much more direct and impact on the high-level politics that we have to deal with. It's migration, it's a basic fear of losing our identity, it's the non-economic sides of globalization where people are really afraid of across Europe. 
And that impacts, because of its history, even more on Central and Eastern Europe. And that's where the populism sort of feeds on. But it's not linked to Central and Eastern Europe. It just plays out a bit more aggressively there than elsewhere. Now for the tough question where we, we make it really personal. You spoke to a lot of EU insiders about how they wield power. But you're an EU insider as well. You've been a speechwriter and an advisor to a number of different commissioners, to presidents as well. How's your view changed of the EU since you joined? What idealism did you get rid of or what conservatism did you get rid of as a result of participating inside the system? I've always been this way, obviously. But uh, I think you do start to see, one, it's, it's a book of intellectual loyalty and also personal loyalty. I have tr tremendous respect for the European Commission as a bit of machinery and for the people who make it work. But you also see, and that's something I picked up as a, in a member of the trade cabinet and as a speechwriter in another cabinet, but you also start to see the limitations of it. You do need a certain modesty as an institution. Europe is bigger than its institution. And the idea that you did have in the, in the 80s, where the whole story starts, that you know, as, far, as Europe advances, the European Commission would turn to de-government Europe as a whole. That isn't panning out as we were, as some were hoping it would. And you do start to see that as good as the institution is, the, the ideals should be much bigger. The story, sorry to use a cliche word, the, the narrative should be a lot bigger than just the Brussels institutions. I think there's a lot of people, especially since the crisis, more in general, who care about Europe, who think it's an important thing one way or another and who read about it but can't see the wood for the trees. And it is a very, I mean, writing something interesting about Europe is tremendously difficult to do because it is technical and there's so much of it that it's, uh, it, it's very hard and it cost me a year of my life. I mean. But then that's one of the reasons why I spoke to, I didn't just write it on my own, I just spoke to all of these people because they have, I mean, the first thing as a speechwriter that you need is ethos, it's the personality of the speaker and the credibility of him or her to speak. And these people, there's about 25 of them, they have this ethos. They've known, they, they know the ropes, they've been there almost, some of them almost for, for uh, four decades. They know it. If they speak in a very realistic uh, way, it's something I believe you should listen to. And if you didn't succeed, I'm not saying I did succeed, I'll leave that for others to judge. But if you succeed in having something about the bigger picture in a manageable form to read, but coming from the people who've actually been thinking about this for decades, I think that's a formula that, that I thought was interesting. Well, EU Confidential has certainly been reading the book. Very sexy, well-designed book and a very easy-to-read book. So, Vincent Stewart, thank you very much for joining us on the podcast. Thank you. That was author Vincent Stewart. Now it's time to speak to Luca Yaye, President of the European Economic and Social Committee. Luca Jaillet, Thanks. welcome to EU Confidential. Thank you. Now, you're assuming office at the right time. We're at a moment where a lot of people are recognizing that Europe needs to become more social in nature. And today, we're talking on the day that the EU budget is announced. And the EU is normally known for regulation and not known for systems of redistribution and welfare and so on. And maybe this is the, the one day of the year where people really focus on where the EU's resources can go into changing what Europe looks like and how it's structured. So how do you feel about this moment in the EU's development and, and the role that you're going to play in it? There is an economic transformation to the new industry 4.0, digital transformation, robotics. There is an energy transformation that we, we choose to do. Huh? 
there is a deep social transformation. We are going out from the welfare system. We know in the past century, but finally we have uh, to, to reinvent the system to, to, to continue to be the best uh, social model in the world. We are leading to a transformation of civil society and political participation. And there is also an international transformation. Huh? Two days ago, we were discussing about the new conflict in trade with the United States. Who cannot imagine that our traditional allies and partner for the, for the last century should become uh, a conflict with them at lead on trade that is very serious. And in international relations, we can say that in, in the last five years, there has been a radical change for co what I call cooperative competition towards uh, uh, conflicting and disruptive uh, confrontation. Now, if I think about the Economic and Social Committee and what makes it different from other institutions, you obviously are part of that wider European narrative and you're on the same sort of policy line as we hear from the Commission and, and often from the Parliament. But is your specific role really to connect down into the grassroots and to make sure that Europe remains connected in those communities or do, or do you see it in a slightly different way? We have a, a very specific role here in the framework of the institution that is still the foundation and I think is still, we are celebrating this year, the 60th anniversary of our foundation. I think that what we represent, we represent Europe at work. The 350 members of this committee came from the employer sector. They are employers. They represent the employer organization. They came from trade unions. So most of them are engaged every day to represent workers, to make uh, bargaining, to make strike, to negotiate uh, new salary provision, or came from agricultural sector, from liberal profession, from NGO. So they are dealing with concrete life. So are capable to represent here not only a reflection or a capacity of a network of a think tank or a political representative, it's represent the concrete life, everyday life in every sector, in all the thousands of sectors of Europe. That's the other value that we can represent. With the second one, that we have the enormous liberty as we have not to deliver a law, but we have a consultative role. Sometimes we can, have, we can be much more free to anticipate uh, some idea that other should negotiate a little more. So we are not better than the representative uh, democracy, but the democracy has to stand on two legs, the representative one and the participatory one. We represent, with all the limits, the participatory one. So we are the house where all this field of the participatory democracy, organizational society, will meet together and will try to put together all the tendency to give a contribution. We have to, to, to think to this also in this very crucial moment where the liberal democracy are threatened by radical changes and also by insight. Now, you're also arriving in office with a plan to make the institution and your own work as president more inclusive, maybe, than we've, we've seen in the past. So I wanted to sort of go through some of the elements of that. One question, and I ask it as an ignorant outsider, is how do you work with other members of civil society who aren't represented in the institution. You know, when a lot of people think of NGOs, they don't just think of trade unions now, they think of environmental activists or some other advocate, whether it's for children's rights or, or, or some other uh, section of the society that's, that's vulnerable. Do you find ways to include their voices in how the institution works? Perhaps the only sector that is clearly underrepresented is the cultural sector, and that's the limit. But all the other sectors are represented. The environmentalist has been a key component, the liberal profession, the NGO, the women, the young organization. We have three groups in our committee, the employers, that represent all the kind of employers, the trade unions, and what uh, is called the various uh, interests, or now Diversity Europe, they chair for seven years and a half, that represent 
all the rest of the world, as I used to say. So mm-hmm. all the other conversions are the same. There's one way. The second way, we have established more than 10 years ago a liaison group that is based on the major networking of civil society organizations, not usually and formally present, just to maintain an institutional network. And the, and the president of the committee co-chaired this liaison group with, with this uh, NGO and uh, civil society at large. And the third one, we have enormously multiplied the hearings in any part of our work. So when we prepare an opinion, for the other institution, we prepare a contribution to the legislative process. We do not do only by expert. Of course, are the members that discuss it, but we start also with hearings, uh, with a fact and finding mission in the member council. Just an example, we make uh, in the last two years, uh, three main dossiers working this way. One was uh, our reaction facing the migration crisis. We decided to realize 11 missions in crucial countries of the, the main borders, so Italy, Greece, uh, and Malta, of transit and of final destination, going and to discuss with people directly concerned. We did the same with the social pillar. We realized in two months uh, an enormous amount uh, of uh, events in all the country, not uh, with uh, citizens at large, but with direct uh, representative of different organizations to discuss with them and to keep on board also the diversity of vision about the social pillar, because we do not have the same idea. And we did the same about the debate about the future of Europe. We contributed the five scenario document of the Commission, but through 28 national debate where we met 1,800 leaders of organization, all the countries together in each country. Now, one of the other issues that we can't ignore, women in politics. 51% of the population, not 51% on the stages and the corner offices of Brussels. Now it's time to let the audience in on a secret. Um, sitting here on the other side of the table from us, we've got a special guest, which is Magda Hrabowska, who is the chef de cabinet of Luca here at the Economic and Social Committee. And I thought it would be really interesting to have you in the discussion because that's not something we see very often in Brussels. A female head of cabinet um, for a president. We now see one in the commission, just arrived in controversial circumstances in, in the last few weeks. But Magda, Luca, tell me, what's important? Point of view, I won't reveal a secret. Oh, do reveal a secret. That's what uh, we love yes, on EU uh, Confidential. Secret, uh, from my point of view, the President Juncker has been told of my intention to nominate uh, the first ever head of cabinet as a woman. <laughs> so he has anticipated a few weeks the nomination of the vice head of cabinet just to be the first. Magda, how does it feel for you to be in the hot seat? And do you feel that it's something you plough on in your own individual career? Or do you feel yourself connected to the experiences and the challenges that other women in Brussels have climbing to the top? I think both, actually. I think Every uh, every woman is different, so I, I, I cannot maybe speak uh, for everyone, but I think it is very important that, that women are represented at the highest level. And so when uh, this job was offered to me, I was very happy and very honored. And now we have started and I have to say I'm really enjoying myself <laughs> doing this job. And uh, Luca is a great boss, so <laughs> it's not as hard as it might uh, seem because of that, because I work for someone who has a great vision and who is also a nice person to work with. So I think I, I have met, I've been in the institutions for, it must be now, 13 years, 14 years. Uh, I've worked for the Commission, for the Parliament, and now and now here for the committee. So I have had many female bosses, also male bosses, so I could observe different management styles and what 
different people bring to these uh, positions. And I just think it's important that we have a certain sort of equilibrium so that women are, are represented because we can bring different things to the table that men do. Both are good. It's not one is better than the other, but we are, we are different and it's good to have both. That strikes me as a real important point in general, where the EU is so diverse and so complicated, but that's not a bad thing. But if you're going to reflect it and represent it or help improve it, I don't know how you do it if you don't have a diversity of perspectives Absolutely. at the table. Absolutely. I think we have to do, and uh, what this has been my decision, but there are also other changes that the committee has done in this, uh, on this subject that are quite new, and I'm very proud to chair the committee in this moment, because on some issue, as we preach on many other, we have to stop to talk the talk and we have to walk the walk finally. Yeah? I am proud because the committee is becoming the first in several fields. Now we have the 48% of the total management, middle and upper management in the committee, in the staff that is done by women. We grown from 2010 when we were 28 to, to 48. We have for the first time ever I have only two vice presidents. They are both women for the first time. We have, have uh, still some problem about the number of women, but this came from the nomination of the member. We are, they are less than 30% on the membership of the committee. But because from my point of view, to respond today to this enormous transformation, transition and challenges, we need something that is very old, but that has been lost. We need the force of emotion. We need what was called the emotional intelligence. Mm -hmm. And I think, with all the respect, with my capacity to be, to be an, emo an emotional person, that women are much more capable to develop and to put in the, in the process this emotional intelligence. We need this because there are people that are using emotional non-intelligence to be an entrepreneur of the fears. And so we need this enormous reserve of good energy that women have to help us to build a new vision, a new positive, a new capacity of re-engaging Europe. That's what I call for a European renaissance. But the European renaissance needs this emotional intelligence and I think that uh, women can put in this process this emotional intelligence. So it's not only for a sense of justice that has to be granted because there is no sense that one half of our population is simply left away or paid 80% of the men. That's no sense. But it's also we need to include this part because we need this energy to complete and to reinvent and not to be blocked where we are. Now, maybe one final general question on the EU. You're just starting your term in office. And I suppose like everyone who's running an institution in this town, you've got a lot of things you want to achieve. But is there one thing or can you tell me one thing that you definitely want to do by the end of your term in office where you're going to look back and say, I'm so pleased that we achieved this. This was essential for the EU that I got this done. I think that we uh, as European and also as civil society in Europe have been capable uh, to anticipate and to feed so many innovative points of vision for the future. One of the most important, we are at the origin of the concept of sustainability has been generated in Europe. At the beginning, it was the green, it was the environmentalist, I remember when it was started, okay. But now has become a large shared agenda. We risk to forget this. And we have to reestablish the conviction that uh, and civil society organization from employer, workers, uh, and uh, any other component, uh, consumer, NGO, can have the force that uh, 
This is the future that we can build. The renaissance can be based on this agenda of sustainable development, where there is a win-win agenda for everybody. For any sector, there is a future for any region, for any part of our society, and even the possibility to guarantee a new social contract for, for the century to come. Luca, Magda, thank you very much for joining me on EU Confidential. It was a pleasure. Thank you. Thank you, thank you Ryan. Thank you. Now it's time to welcome back the Brussels Brains Trust. Good morning, Alba Finn. Good morning. Good morning, Carmen Porn. Hi, Ryan. Carmen, you're filling in once again very nobly for Lena Abarus, who is uh, continuing her adventures on the other side of the world. So thanks for doing that. No problem at all. We've got a really interesting lineup of topics this week. I'm going to start on a positive note. Let's start with an EU thumbs up. I think, Alvaro, it was you that first pointed out that Facebook is stepping up to the mark with its democratic duties and banning foreign ads in the lead up to Ireland's abortion referendum. Yeah, so I think there's been a lot of scrutiny on Facebook in Ireland because that's where basically its European headquarters are. The referendum is coming up in about two weeks. And it had been a concern for a long time that we would see social media targeted advertising at certain groups of people. And actually, it came out in the media, but also in a podcast of a friend of mine, that they found out that a lot of the ads, well, they were American paid ads, basically. And as we know, there's a lot of concern about foreign engagement in elections now following Brexit and also the American elections. So I just thought it was a great move, although they should have probably done it a little bit earlier because those ads have been coming up for a while. But I think it's a great move. And there's a lot of now talk about how this is going to work. They're not going to ban, obviously, Irish ads and how to tell the difference between them, I think, will be quite difficult because some of the funding around things is is a bit opaque. But yeah, I thought it was a, a thumbs up. Carmen, you follow this topic in your day job as a health reporter here at Politico. Does that surprise you that that sort of thing is coming up in this referendum? Give us a bit more of the context. No, indeed, it's not surprising because the referendum on whether to repeal the Eighth Amendment of the Irish Constitution that pretty much gives equal rights to the mother and the unborn child is in a way the next European election. And there have been indeed concern, as Alba was saying, about foreign involvement and about how people will be targeted, if at all, on Facebook. So it is interesting that Facebook is doing it. It's probably also to show Europe that they are serious about solving some of the problems that they had in the past. At the same time, it looks like it may indeed harm the cause of those that want to preserve the Eighth Amendment because apparently many of this ad from the United States were coming from very conservative groups that wanted to keep the amendment in place. There had also been other voices saying that because Ireland is so small and because many of the people are old people that are not necessarily on Facebook, that maybe this kind of targeting wouldn't be as effective as it was in the U.S. elections, for example. So it's still to be seen whether this would play a role or not at all in the referendum results. Yeah, I think overall it is a good thing, but I'm surprised on a number of aspects, I would say. I mean, first of all, I can't believe that this isn't already standard operating practice. I mean, if I was Facebook, I would have been figuring this out the day after the referendum was called. They have a big presence in the country. It's not like abortion is a suddenly controversial issue in Ireland. It's it's been controversial throughout Facebook's entire existence. And I mean, if we were talking about the Soros 
Open Society Foundation's funding an election in this way, alarm bells would have been rung a long time earlier than it has been around this issue. Or if this was happening from European groups influencing an American election, I think the alarm bells would have been sounded earlier as well. So I want to say well done, but I don't want to give two cheers. I only want to give one cheer. Yeah, but actually, Ryan, it's interesting that you brought that up. So some Irish groups who have received funding from OSF, which is the Open Society Foundation, which George Soros is the benefactor of, they actually had some of their funding questioned by the Irish body that is meant to be following this. So that already has been on the other side, been been a problem. And they actually had to kind of, yeah, basically either return that money or they couldn't use it for the referendum. So just to point out that this has been noted on both sides, but the ads in relation to this, the foreign ads are mainly US kind of alt-right or very religious groups who have been targeting people on social media, as far as I'm aware. And as an Irish citizen, Alva, do you think that the electoral body that was making those other rulings, do you think that they have enough teeth? Is this a generally well-resourced body that also could have been onto Facebook about this? Because it's a bit of a surprise that Facebook had to take the initiative in a way. Well, I'm not a totally expert in this area, but I do think it it was up to Facebook. We are now seeing actually quite a number of gaps in our legislation around the elections. For example, people are now putting up posters, mainly from the anti-choice side, that are factually inaccurate around the legislation that's going to be proposed after this. Basically, they're saying that there will be, uh, we'll be able to have abortions up to six months, which is not true. It's only up to 12 weeks unless there is a risk posed to the life of the mother or there's something very wrong with the fetus, that means that they will not be able to exist outside the womb. So this election is really proving that we need to take a look at our election laws. And I think SIPO, which is the body that looks at this, is probably quite overwhelmed. This is a huge referendum, and I think there's a huge focus, not just in Ireland, but also internationally, on this next election, given the terrible (laughs) elections that we've seen happening recently. So, yeah. Okay, well, I think we covered that pretty well. Maybe let's uh, lighten the mood a little with an EU LOL. It's a double whammy, actually. We've got two instances just this week alone of senior political figures being caught uh, essentially swearing when they thought that the microphones weren't listening. First up, Commissioner Elzbieta Biankowska. She's the industry commissioner here in Brussels, and she was at the European Parliament thought the mic was turned off and talked about how much she hated her job. Quote, fuck, how I hate this. Yeah. And then we've got uh, the Spanish Prime Minister's spokesperson, uh, Carmen Martinez Castro, who said to a party aide, quote, how I would like to give them the finger and say, fuck off to a bunch of pensioners who weren't very happy with the Spanish Prime Minister. What's up with the F words? And what advice do we have for politicos tempted to sort of derail their communication? I just have a question. Has that ever happened to you, Ryan? You've never been caught on mic. Uh, no, but I did write a book with the word F something, something, something in it. So yeah, I told an entire country to F off, but that was planned. I think that's a little bit different. Yeah, I think that this happens occasionally and it comes out in the media and everybody thinks it's very hilarious. I do think it's very interesting that the industry commissioner here was saying that she hates her job. She's in a position of power that most people would literally, you know, 
ring next for. So I think that's interesting. I think a press secretary in Spain right now probably does hate their job. I think it sometimes it shows a little bit of humanity in these leaders. So yeah, I, I always love when things like that happen. You know, you're on the mic and you, you don't know. I agree. Same here. I think that I think the main thing to do is to really do your best to ensure that the mic is switched off. But sometimes you're probably in such a flow of emotion that you just forget there was a mic there and you just say what you really think. Most of us do it. At the same time, we're probably a bit lucky because we don't have those positions and, you know, whatever F word we put out is not going to be an outrage like it is for these two people. Yeah, I would say that it is a sign of humanity when people have some goodwill towards you, but it can be a political problem when it reinforces a perception that people already have of you. If you're already seen as someone who is arrogant or dismissive or out of touch, and I'm not making that accusation about either of these two people. But if, if people have that impression of you already, and then you're kind of swatting people away and, and being angry at your privileged position, then I think you're in trouble. I have to say, personally, the biggest worry for me is that if I have to run to the bathroom, that someone hasn't figured that system out and, uh, and that gets broadcast to the world. There we go. Uh, <laughs> now we're just going to upgrade to an EUWTF. And I honestly... Everyone listening, I don't know what I'm going to say in this next section. Alva's going to introduce it. It is a system of two prices for beer in a new pop-up bar in Brussels. And it's got a very interesting backstory. Alva, take it away. So it isn't actually just for beer. So I went last week to the opening of Brussels' only lesbian bar. And it was started by a group of gay ladies here who wanted a space just for gay women. And yeah, well, I'm gay, so I went uh, to see what it was like. And it's been actually, I think, funded a little bit by the city of Brussels. And I went with two friends of mine who are men. And when we looked at the menus, there was a menu A and a menu B. And up at the top right hand corner, it basically said that there are two pricing options for all drinks. And you have to pick which menu you're from based on whether or not you think you have a privileged position. So on the basis of your sexuality, your gender, your race, your ethnicity. I do have to say that it was probably one of the most diverse crowds I've seen in Brussels. There was trans people, people of kind of all ethnicities. And yeah, I thought it was great, but it made other people feel very uncomfortable. To me, I, and it also made me feel uncomfortable. I kind of had misunderstood at the very beginning that I was going to go there. I'd tell them about my life and then they'd tell me which menu to pick from. But I always consider myself privileged because I'm white. But it did make me think, you know, because I'm gay or because I'm a woman, do I think that I get paid less than other people? Do I think I'm in a better economic situation? And I think that is something that we should all be thinking about. But it is also a bit uncomfortable for the customer experience, I think. Are we talking like a 10 cent discount? What's the sort of discount we're talking about? What was the price difference? Yeah, so I bought a Negroni and then in the end I paid from the lower price because the lady behind the bar was just like, uh, give me 20 euro. And then in the end, she actually priced me lower because I was, I think I was confused. She was confused. But the rest of the time I paid from the more expensive menu and it was a two euro difference, which is quite big. Yes. Yeah. Carmen, what do you reckon? I don't know. It's interesting indeed. I think it makes you think about yourself and I just did now when Alba was describing the system and it's funny because um, I kind of feel I only met white privilege when I moved to Brussels because as a Romanian abroad you do feel discriminated by your fellow Europeans and 10 years ago when I came to Brussels I think Romanians are even more discriminated than now we're looked down upon we're seen as the poor 
you know, in France, they were seen as the thieves of wallets. So I didn't, I, I would have thought myself not being privileged, but then um, I met people who were telling me, but you're white, you should feel good about it. So um, indeed, I wouldn't, I wouldn't know. I would probably pick the more expensive one also to kind of, you know, pay that off. But it's, it's an interesting system for sure that makes you think about it. And um, yeah, I would definitely try it. Yeah, if it was a lesbian bar, I probably would have been charging the men a different price, but I guess that they can't really do that, legally speaking. And and I have a business model question, I suppose. I know that sounds very antiseptic, but I do wonder how you can price that out. And if one of the problems with there not being a lesbian bar in Brussels was people couldn't make the numbers work, I just wonder how they're going to figure this out from week to week. Like I, I kind of foresee this imploding in some particular way. So I did speak to one of the women whose idea it is to run it. And it is true, like, it, it's very hard to keep a lesbian bar open because you're very much in the minority, even of a population of women and of gay people. They very much wanted to have it as, like, a queer women's space. So they had done some media around it saying, you know, we welcome people from everywhere, but we would like to keep it predominantly lesbian. I don't know how you do that. I don't know how you police it. But one of the things about the pricing as well was this is only a pop-up at the moment. And I was saying, oh, it would be great if it could be more sustainable. And they said that part of the pricing was to allow people who don't necessarily have the money to go out all the time to also engage in like this fun space where they're accepted as who they are. Uh, So I thought that was interesting. But yeah, a lot of it is very ideological and it probably isn't going to be sustainable, but at least they get to do their vision, I suppose. And it's in and around Gay Pride is two weekends. So they will only be open in and around that. And the Brussels City gave them money to do it. So I think it's a a good project. Is it necessarily sustainable? I think they also know themselves. How do you keep a lesbian bar open? Because a lot of lesbians only drink beer. So, yeah, I think they have those questions around that themselves. And I'm also wondering if people would use some things to go for the for the lower price of the beer, if they would say, yes, I'm white and this and that. But, um, you know, but I'm gay, so I feel discriminated in some cases and things like that. I, I could totally think of a few people who would do that. It's definitely a trust system. And part of me thinks they should aim higher as well. Like, I get the idea of people in a privileged position having a voluntary duty, effectively, of of contributing back into their community if they care about it. I wonder if they should actually be aiming for some crowdfunding where, you know, if I walked into the bar and they said, does this matter to you? Is this important? And I said, okay, here's 50 euros. Let's get 100 people like that and let's make it happen. That might actually raise them some more money for their sustainability than than just doing it on a per-drink basis. Mm. Yeah, I think it's interesting, like a social... You know, this idea of having a social enterprise, something that's really socially responsible is quite a new thing in Europe. There's a lot of people working on it here, actually, in Brussels, like lots of NGOs who are trying to basically propose that all of our companies going forward should be socially responsible and sustainable. But how to actually keep them open and have business plans that are sustainable, I think it's quite difficult. And yeah, this is just the the first, it was only the opening and it was absolutely packed. And every single time I walk past it, it's been packed. So I hope that that continues. But, you know, it's it's the same with any bar. Once it's not the thing du jour, like, are people going to continue to go? Will they always have this steady flux of people going in and out? And it's a big space as well. But I think for any listeners, go and check it out in St. Catherine and experience how uncomfortable it is to really look at yourself and think, am I privileged? Yeah. Should I pay more? And should someone else pay less? 
Very good advice. And the name of the new bar in Brussels that we've just been discussing is Mothers and Daughters. Thank you both. That's all we've got time for on this episode of EU Confidential. But everyone should think of us as a model as well. We didn't have a business model when we started. We just kept plugging away and we're full of you. We're full of the crowds every single week now. So it's proof these things can continue on a sustainable pace if enough people want them. So thank you, Carmen. Thank you, Alva. And a big round of thanks to Ginger Hervey, Andrew Gray and Wei Dong Lin for everything they did to make this episode of EU Confidential possible.